Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 12 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. On today's episode, we are going to talk about ETFs. We're going to talk about the inner workings of ETFs, something that's called creation and redemption. So talking about the tax efficiency of how ETFs work, fees, the different types of ETFs, and just some other things to look for. And before we get there, as usual, we want to start with a check on the market pulse and give you an update there. So how? great to see you today as always. I'll let you kick us off with our market update. Thanks, Chris. Great seeing you as well. Hopefully things are nice and sunny down in Southern California. And yeah, the market update, uh, it is, what, Thursday, December 16th, 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, yesterday at the Fed, was it yesterday or my days are mixed up. It's Friday, December 16th, 10 a.m. Pacific. Sorry. And uh, yes, the Wednesday, the Fed. It's Wednesday, yeah. Yeah, Wednesday, the Fed raised rates by half a percentage point, which is still considered a jumbo rate hike. Uh, just a reminder, um, it's usually 0.25 as the, the normal hike or the normal cut. Uh, we've been seeing 0.75, which is three times that normal rate. It's because there's this concept where the Fed fell behind the curve last year, right? And they let inflation run rampant. Um, and... Wednesday was the first first of the lesser of the jumbo cuts. It was still jumbo at 0.5, but that was widely expected. It was more than 80% odds uh, coming into Wednesday that the Fed would start reducing the, the amount of hikes. Um, but more importantly, it was just people paying attention to what Jay Powell was going to say about future hikes. And the Fed is forecasting, unfortunately, more hikes ahead and the possibility of no cuts for the next year. So that sent markets into a, you know, bit of a sell-off. And I think volatility all year has been Fed, you know, Fed reaction. So I think uh, heading into next year, we might see more of that. So markets came down after that announcement. Because the day before, there was also some good news that was released. Tuesday was a very positive day yeah. in the markets. What was that data? That was CPI. Uh, inflation is coming down. Mm. And inflation is ex- unexpectedly coming down faster than what, what the economists are forecasting. And that's why the, the positive news leading up to that point, or the positive performance leading, leading up to that point, had been so strong. Uh, we've we've had a strong end of the year, despite uh, recent sell-off, like, Really, since October, we've had a really, really nice uh, rally here. We'll actually talk about this in a minute, but yeah. this is the one of the best two-month periods in uh, since 1950. It's been a nice time to be invested. Yeah, yeah, it shows you how hard that is to time, though, because what what data that was really positive that we got in October, right? Uh, November CPI came in low, but that that was October's data. So no kidding. If you, yeah, if you're, you, if you're waiting for a green light, you're a month late. 
you told us to invest after the the midterms, right? You said uh, it's always up after the midterms. <laughs> I, you know, I, I remember we we put it on the air, and, and so it's, of course it's, it's positive. Yeah, yeah, it's official. But that that would have been a month late in this case, right? Yeah, I think it's more coincidence than my skill because of, of course, yeah, yeah. I think uh, everyone who listens to us on a regular basis knows that we we are not good at market timing, and yeah, no I, one is. I, yeah, I stick my neck out because I'm basing it on uh, history. But yeah, there's other things that that probably came into play other than the election, right? We, mm -hmm. we know who is running Congress, who's in the presidency and all that stuff. But the bigger elephant in the room was inflation. And it's working out towards our, our benefit. Yeah, as we say, the most boring news is eh, the markets generally go up and sometimes they go down. Yeah. And that's kind of what we say here all the time. And so we look over at history and we can see these big rallies and these big rallies tend to fall, follow bigger market drops, which is kind of what we've been through this year. So, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a healthy dose of what history tells us, which is just kind of the reality of stay in, stay long, stay yeah. calm. But obviously the media likes us to focus on everything from oil prices to, to trade wars, to, to whatever else might be going on. Not oil prices and lately have people really focus on the bad news and yeah, i've strange. seen more head headlines about rising gas prices versus the sinking gas prices we've experienced in the last four or five months so you know there needs to be an index for this someone needs yeah. to put together the the perceived something say oil prices based on headlines and then the actual and cross that because if oil prices are only ever in the news when they're going up the perception is that they always are going up, but in between those dates of when it hits the news, it goes down a bunch, yeah. you know, Oh my God, it's going up again. Well, it's going up from a 20% reduction from its prior high. You know, it, this is my gripe with the media constantly. So, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe someday CNBC will have me on and I can, um, I can, I can speak my real thoughts. Well, yeah, people <laughs> love, to, people love talking about rising gas prices. Oh yeah. And maybe the media is feeding into that. Like, so what came first, the chicken or the egg there? Because the media wants attention, but they know people focus on $6 a gallon, right? Gas prices versus $4, right? They, mm -hmm. It's, it, we kind of do it to ourselves. And I think uh, we, we put a lot of our inflation expectations on the cost of gas, right? Jay Powell said expectations have remained unanchored to high inflation, meaning we expect inflation to come down as a, as a group. And that's, I think that has a lot to do with gas prices, which will go up again. Like that's what gas does. It goes up and then down. We've been telling clients this too, where mm -hmm. gas is expensive. Yeah. They're most likely going to come down, but no one, no one remembers that. But here we are. Can we also talk about the readings that come out? Cause they go year over year and they go month over month. <laughs> yeah. And this one drives me crazy. So I want to talk about it for a minute. Yeah. Can you describe that a little bit? Okay. Year over year is um, what it is. It's, it's, let's say we're doing inflation in October, 2022. We're going to compare it to inflation levels in October, 2021. Right? So if you have a lower base in a particular year, and this current year, it comes in a little bit hotter. That's going to look like a bigger gap. That's called the base effect. Meaning if you're, if you have a low register in the year before, and then the year after you have a high register, 
sure, that, that's going to show high inflation. But we we were climbing, gradually climbing up to this point. Not, mm-hmm. it didn't jump from October this year to October from the October last year. So the month over month you're describing, it, the the November CPI came out, you know, on Tuesday. So November showed a decline month over month, but it showed a big jump year over year in 2021. Mm-hmm. And again, um, I know inflation's higher, prices are higher than they were a year ago, but really who cares about what the last year did because what's going to happen next year with all the high bases in 2023, we're going to show deflation probably. Is that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, is that accurate? Maybe not. I think it's a lagging of, indicator yeah. is what you say. It lags on the way up and it lags on the way down. With a year window. like wh- With a year window. That? Yeah. Is it as simple as taking that month over month number and just times 12 and that's what the actual projected future yeah, inflation you, rate is? Is that how we can look at it? I think if you annualize it, it because I'm comparing month over month, November over October makes sense, right? Yeah. But yeah, the, the, you could probably do a trend line versus... October over October, November over November, mm-hmm. but to figure out the forecasted annual, yeah, because wasn't it point two or point three? What came out on point Tuesday? three? Point three. Point three. So if I multiply it by twelve, it'd be three point six inflation. 3.6. Then all of a sudden, all yeah, of a sudden all... we're winning, right? It's <laughs> yeah. all good. Yeah, yeah. We don't need a recession to to solve this problem. But hmm. again, as I described with inflation before, uh, you imagine you're driving on a highway and you're driving up to 80 miles an hour, mm-hmm. right? Let's say you, you go cruise at 83 miles an hour. You're not heading towards 90, thank goodness, but you're still going pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And so I think those year-over-year numbers kind of give some insight of where we were, but it doesn't really give a good trend to where we're heading. And yeah, I think it's more more of a glory headline if you're publishing CPI versus PCE. And we've mentioned that PCE is what we look at as well, along with the Fed. Again, the peers, my peers at the Fed, all the doctors look at the same data as, as I do. But PCE is what people actually buy. CPI is a fixed basket that doesn't really get changed too much, right? So if no one's buying washer dryers, why, do, why the hell are washer dryers impacting my inflation readings? Mm-hmm. Because... I can't think of anyone who's bought a washer or dryer because they all refreshed them in 2020, 2021. Mm-hmm. Like no mm-hmm. one's buying a new one to replace a year old washer dryer. But in theory, there's always older washer There's always going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that will come with a regular buying cycle, like TVs, like computers, things like that. Mm-hmm. And even I think, building. We're always building new homes, maybe yeah. less because some things are on pause, but that's going to require new appliances. Yeah, 2021 created a lot of imbalances because of all the shutdowns and stimulus in 2020. So I think what we saw most likely be temporary, right, in in terms of the the crunch of goods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with all this, so takeaway is month-over-month inflation is probably more relevant to the actual data than year over year because year over year has such a lag at this point yeah month over month 
again, both you know both are, are relevant for kind of long and short term viewpoints. But because inflation spiked so much and it's come down now, I think relatively quickly, the more relevant data point to look at is month over month. And uh, gosh, if we're at three point six percent, that's that's good. So yeah, eh, we'll yeah, check back, back in to, here. Go back to the car analogy, right? Uh, the the first town I passed, I was going seventy five miles an hour, going mm -hmm. faster. Mm -hmm. The current town I'm in is going 83 miles an hour, but I'm not speeding up to 95. Like there's, you know, what relevancy is that last town? Yeah, um, some, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't really use it as where I'm heading, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. And what happened with interest rates? So a ton of news this week, right? So what happened with interest rates? Like did the 10-year treasury fall? Did it go up? Did it, what happened with mortgage rates? Like what happened with all this news this week? Yeah, mortgage rates, uh, which are tied to the 10-year, um, actually came down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And we were hovering above uh, close to 7%, and it had one of the biggest drops in a week um, recently. So it's because even if the Fed's raising rates, the market's doing something else on the other parts of the market, right? All the Fed controls is the, the, the overnight rate, which is what banks lend to each other. And that's the only influence that they have. Mm -hmm. So when they raise rates, the market say can say, "Well, you're bluffing. We're gonna we're gonna buy more bonds and bring interest rates down on other parts of uh, the maturity curve, right? We call that the yield curve. So the ten year, the the Fed has zero. Well, let me backtrack. The Fed has traditionally zero influence over, sure. except in this in this. Uh, scenario where they've been actively buying open market bonds mm -hmm. to prop up our economy in the last two years. So yeah, and now we they're did selling see, those. Yes, right? they're, they're mm -hmm. letting them run off mm -hmm. essentially because mm -hmm. when they mature, they're not going to replenish. Um, but we, we've had quite a bit of uh, institutions coming in by. We've had zero liquidity crunch in terms of um, when the Fed is selling their bonds or there's another buyer. Mm -hmm. um, because if no one's buying bonds, yeah, interest rates will go way up. Um, we did see it early in the year, but it seemingly capped. So pension funds, insurance companies, banks, all starving for yield, right? And they finally mm -hmm. got something that they can return in fixed income. Based on the Fed's balance sheet today, it'll take about four years. Based on their, their speed of yeah. runoff and yeah. what they're, they're reducing their balance sheet by, it'll take about four years to get back to pre-pandemic balance sheet levels. So if you think about that in context, the Fed bought a ton of bonds to support the bond market and uh, support the the bond prices right in the pandemic. So they took on tons, uh, trillions in a very short period of time. And now based on runoff, it's four years projected. Yeah. So our very simple analysis of that would be we're probably never going to get back to pre-pandemic levels because no. in four years, they're likely going to do other, some, some sort of stimulus or something that will pause that program to try to try to smooth the business cycle as they, as they continue to do. Yeah. Or let it naturally play out. Cause we, mm -hmm. we are living in a, an artificial type of interest rate environment that was sure. kept low and now it's being and now high. Mm -hmm. normalized. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we think it's part of the normalization process, but it's kind of the price we're paying for the 2020 combination of stimulus and monetary policy, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Let's shift and talk about Blackstone. Blackstone was in the news this last week. So for those that don't know, Blackstone is a massive REIT, which is a real estate investment trust. And they buy buildings. They buy a lot of stuff in Vegas. They buy a lot of stuff all over the country. And they have these funds that investors can invest in in order to participate in, in these holdings. And these funds are uh, illiquid for a period of time. And so let's just talk about what was in the news, Hal, and, and what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, yeah. Blackstone um, runs real estate. So if you're invested in them, you've got to know you're investing in real estate, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what's happened was real estate with rising rates has come down broadly. Mm -hmm. uh, rates or real estate investment trusts are typically debt funded. Uh, a lot of them hold about 30, 40% debt to keep operating. Mm -hmm. um, but the cost of debt went way up, right? We just talked about mortgage rates go way up. So the the real estate industry as a whole, the traded side of the real estate industry has come down, right? Uh, VNQ is the Vanguard real estate index. It's down 30, it was down 30% at its bottom. It's I think it's down 22% year to date. So when, as typical for advisors, or not advisors, but retail investors or any type of individual investor, they see their uh, investment go down, what are they gonna do? They're gonna sell. They do exactly the opposite of what the typical investor should do. They mm -hmm. they actually should be buying real estate at this point. Again, not, not advice, but I'm saying buying something low. Price-wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, price-wise. Um, but they, they rush to the exits. So Blackstone said, no, we're, we're not going to be able to meet these demands, even though you're an investor of ours. So, so we're going to give you a li limited amount of your investment back. Because one, your investment in commercial real estate. I can't just sell a office building in, in a matter of days. Those process, those transactions take years sometimes. Yes. And I think we're, we're talking about two, two types of REITs or two types of real estate. There's publicly yeah. traded yeah, you can and then there's non-publicly traded. And so, you know, you quoted the Vanguard index. If you pull up that index and you look at all the holdings, everything inside of there is going to be a publicly traded fund or excuse yeah. me, stock like Simon Malls, which is who owns and operates Northgate Mall, for example, uh, up in the Seattle area. So Blackstone is a, a is not publicly traded, meaning they have, meaning they have these offerings they have a capital raise, money goes in, and then you can request redemptions. And the reason why that structure is is meaningfully different is because you don't have the same amount of liquidity in a non-publicly traded fund as you do in a publicly traded fund. So we can always snap our fingers and sell that Vanguard fund. It might be down 30%, but we could turn it back into cash and the cash is liquid. Yeah, yeah. But that's because it's buying things that the underlying can just go and sell. Blackstone's buying actual buildings. And so if they bought, for example, one of their holdings is the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Vegas. And if they had redemptions, say a bunch of people are trying to sell their fund, how to your point, Blackstone can't just go list that building and go <laughs> sell it. Yeah. Open door is not going to buy them. Correct. And so they limit the amount of withdrawals because if there's a, a run on the fund, they would likely have to be forced to sell at a bad time, which would not actually be in the best interest for the fund or the investors in the fund, and especially the people that are still holding the fund. So I yeah, think just yeah. what's interesting here is that 
it's this, you know, human nature is sell when things are going down, buy when things are going up. To your point, it's, it would likely be better to do the opposite of that. But because you're invested in a fund that also has to deal with other humans investing in that same fund, and they're now requesting withdrawals, that could actually hurt your returns if you're still owning the fund. Yeah. Well, let me play devil's advocate because let's say you're Blackstone and I'm Josh Mo investor. Mm -hmm. Well, it's my money. I, I want to be able to take it out. Mm -hmm. What's your response, Blackstone or Chris? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my response is we have a, an obligation to you as an investor in the fund to not sell assets at a terrible price. And so we limit withdrawals so that we can hold assets to sell them in an opportune time. And we don't feel like right now is an opportune time for some assets, at least. But I think real estate is going to crash, Chris. Well, we don't. We're a real estate fund. <laughs> we buy, uh, we buy things that we are long-term and long-term, you know, real estate will be just fine. And I think the other appropriate response here is you should have known what you got gotten getting yourself into most. Yeah. We're pretty I, I think, upfront about saying uh, liquidity, meaning being able to sell is not going to always be the case. And I think that's a great point. And, and, and our point is not that Blackstone is good or bad. Yeah, we it don't, is, again, it's, we don't invest yeah, anything in Blackstone. Yeah, this for, is, yeah. yeah, this isn't a, a conflict. Our point is if an investor chooses to invest in something that is illiquid, that has these liquidation periods yeah. that may or may not be met, that investor has to understand that they might not be able to get their money back in that investment. And there are regulations on trying to make sure the investor is qualified in order to get into this investment in the first place. but they're really not that strict and there's really no test or anything that anybody has to go through. So yeah. our point is that if this type of thing is a piece of your portfolio, um, it just has to be an asset that you're committed to holding. <laughs> yeah. It can't be a majority of your money that you might need back in a pinch because this type of thing happens and it's Blackstone or any of these, it's their way of trying to protect current investors in the fund. Yeah. So, Again, I think it all falls back on proper planning. If you need to liquidate one of the most illiquid assets in your portfolio, then you probably set it up improperly. It, yeah, I would agree. Why, yeah. yeah, why would you need to touch the hardest thing to sell first? That makes no sense. That makes no sense. Yeah. 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 All right. I think the last thing you had here was some good news on used car prices. Sounds like they're coming down. Well, it's good news because they're not car dealers, right? Uh, they're coming uh, down. Yeah, They've been true. coming, <laughs> and they peaked. Uh, car uh, used cars, especially, have peaked in the summer, and mm -hmm. they've been coming down pretty rapidly. And we're looking at week over week price drops of maybe two to three percent. That's because the supply chain is improving. People are seeing uh, quite a bit of uh, availability on the lots. Granted, uh, with the rising rates. <laughs> to finance a car, a brand new car probably costs what five to eight percent in interest. If you're something like that, yeah. Used cars are about what six to ten, upwards of eleven percent to to finance, depending on your credit. And we're also seeing quite a bit of uh, increase in late late payments and delinquencies. So we might see another flood of car, especially used car inventories coming in. I was just pulling up an email here that I just got on December 14th. So two days ago, and for the first time in a year, maybe two years, the subject of this is up to $3,500 off MSRP. What? 
Yeah. And it says, see all our pre-owned inventory. Wide selection of high-quality used cars. Save 1000 on this 2023. Save 1500 on this 2022. And the list goes on. Save 3500 on this car. Save 3000 on... Okay, this is new. Yeah. You remember yeah, I think... I, I, we talked about this a number of episodes go over the summer, and, and every email I'd get was saying my car was going up in value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think gone are the days are um, the dealer markups, which I think, again, dealers should be punished for that. I think if you have a local dealer that have marked up uh, prices, which contributed to this inflationary mess that we're in now, cars yeah. cars were a big chunk of CPI. So let me play the smallest violin for car dealers that have marked up that are sitting on a ton of inventory. I hope yeah. they continue to see uh, lower demand because they took advantage of a situation that we were all facing and they exacerbated it. And again, no love for car dealers here. Okay, this is interesting too. Final point. This is not a prediction or a recommendation or anything, but <laughs> I got a text from Tesla. And this is uh, this is Tesla in, in my local area. And it says, checking in as we approach the end of the year, if there's anything we can help you with, blah, blah, blah. We currently have brand new inventory vehicles ready for pickup as early as next week. Whoa, yeah. I thought yeah. Teslas were like six months six, out. Seven, yeah, yeah. Happy to assist you with a test drive, questions, or placing a vehicle res uh, uh, reservation. You know, reply yes, and 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 come on in. Okay, interesting. So maybe even the company with the greatest backlog in cars has either seen a drop off in their in their deposits, or they've actually met demand. And I think the next earnings will be interesting to see if they've met their backlog and they aren't seeing as much demand. Because I have never seen a text like this from from Tesla. Yeah, maybe people are sandbagging too for the first to roll around because I think that's when the new uh, EV tax credit has come in. So mm, they're, maybe, I That's again, interesting. I, yeah. That's I, true. I think only one Tesla qualifies for that. Because it has three. to be built mostly in America, right? Yeah. We, yeah. Well, none yeah. of the other EVs qualify for that at this point. I think Tesla's the only one <laughs> and then it's only their Model yeah. 3 because there's a price point as well. So yeah. that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so it could be a buyer sandbagging. I, I know Tesla is a pretty much a, a sought after vehicle, but yeah, I think the we mentioned the the chip shortage was like someone's lying here because a lot of the chip makers are saying we're sitting on a ton of inventory, and if car manufacturers are saying we don't have enough chips, so something doesn't line up there. I and know. I think we're seeing it, and again, don't reward the the dealers who took advantage of the situation by, you know. By going back to them, uh, they should. They never should have listed cars above MSRP. I've seen. I've seen certain Fords go for twenty thousand above sticker. But at who's the heat buying of this. that? I mean, yeah. th that's the thing. I, I can't blame the dealers. It's the people. It's the people who are buying it. Yeah, but I think the dealers are taking advantage of. Well, Chris, you're not going to buy today. I'm going to sell the how because he's willing to pay twenty thousand over sticker. And but that's prices. I yeah, totally. That's, that's I, free market. Yes, free market. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's. My argument would be would be, okay. You might need a car, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, fine. You can buy a used car instead of a new car, and and still not pay a new par car sticker price and drive off the lot and drop drop the cost. But for for goods that are say, you know, food or toilet paper or these things that that people have to have need, they have yeah, to get yeah. on a recurring basis, like. If there's a whole bunch of extra profits in there, okay, blame the the company.
But if it's something like a car that's not a necessary purchase today, at least at, at that exact price point, I don't think I blame the dealers. Yeah, I think well, it's people. Well, actually, to build on that point, um, the most amount of people, like in terms of proportion, paying a thousand dollars or more in car payments, yeah, has gone way up, and also yeah. the number of years. Like I've seen eight-year payment terms. Who who owns outside of me? But who owns a car for more than seven years? Mm, like, I do. I mean, I think a lot yeah. of people do. I think the average car life is like I, fifteen to twenty years, right? Yeah, and I believe this. My, yeah. my my the data in my head is is a few years old, but at one point a few years ago, the average car was eleven years old on the U.S. market, and it was this big talk at the time of no one's buying new cars. Oh my God, there's aging cars, and <laughs> yeah. we need to try to stimulate this this part of the 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 economy so that um, you know new cars get sold again. And I don't have an updated statistic on that, but I'd be shocked if it's moved in any direction. Really. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, I think cars are 11 years old. My cars aren't 11 years old, but I would hold on to them that long. Yeah, yeah. So dealers definitely were in position of leverage there. They they mm -hmm. definitely put the screws to consumers, but there were some guys, some people out there paying over well over sticker. And yeah, it takes one, right? One sucker. And the dealer I'm just mad they... at that person, not the dealer. The dealer's <laughs> just trying to make money. Yeah. And that person, and I think the, quite a bit of the that person won't be able to sustain those payments and we're going to see a lot of repos here that's if our car car re repossessors are you know uh, at full force again because i, I just, think the repos are getting delayed even because there's not enough people to they're not funded like the irs recoup, yeah recoup these cars yeah hmm. yeah yeah the cars are weird right because you pay more for it and it just goes excuse me it just goes down in value it's not like a, a house if you overpaid for a house you know, it's not like it always goes up in value. We've seen that today, but over a long period of time, it should go up by a little bit. And yeah. so if you overpaid in one year, you know, maybe over a period of say five or 10 years, you'd kind of come back to where you were. A car always goes down. So every dollar you overpay for it is, is it's a tax essentially. Yeah. That's why I always laugh about the guys who say, well, I got a great deal at the car dealership. No, you got, you got to take it, take it <laughs> to the cleaners because cars are a depreciating asset and you paid any obscene amount of money for a truck or SUV. Okay. ETFs <laughs> on to the main event. Uh, yeah. Why we we're could, really here. You, what are we here for? Yeah. So yeah. we could talk about car. I mean, there's so much fun stuff that we could just keep talking about here, but I guess at some point we have to, we have to, we have to turn the train here. So ETFs, the objective of today is to provide an education on ETF structures. Why are they often considered more, not often they are, why are they more tax efficient than mutual funds? And some of the things to look out for in ETFs, I think that the media just is, well, credit to the media. Um, it says go buy cheap things and, um, Expense ratio is not just the only reason to invest in something. Just like when you're looking at your menu of 401k funds, the ones that performed well in the one, three, and five-year history generally aren't the ones that we should just pile all the money into, yeah. right? So these factors are what we were hoping to sort of unpack today and provide an education on ETFs. Last time we talked about mutual funds. If you didn't catch us in our last episode, dive into that. So how? why don't you kick us off? ETF structures, um, what is an ETF? How, how do these things work? Yeah, ETFs as opposed to mutual funds are yep. are a different 
structure that essentially do the same thing where you're, you have the ability to buy lots of stocks in one investment type, which is awesome because we are, we do preach diversification, but ETFs are different because you can buy them in the middle of a trading day. Well, that's the only time I recommend buying them is in the middle of a trading day, not after ours. And uh, they, they have a lot of the same exposures that a lot of mutual fund index funds have, but you can buy them midday. So they uh, trade like a stock because I can buy a share of Apple stock yes. while yep. the market's open. I can sell it while the market's open. Um, in ETF, I can do that same thing versus a mutual fund. If I put in my, my order to buy, that's going to end up happening at the closing price every day. Exactly. And you'll, you'll see the price of the ETF fluctuate with the market during the mm -hmm. day, the training day. Mutual funds, you won't find the price until the next day. So there's a bit of a, a lag with the mutual fund. Why is that? It put it's managed as one pool, so uh, depending on how the underlying holdings perform, you know they have to get accounted for after the trading day ends, because that one pool is measured versus Apple as Apple, Microsoft as Microsoft, as where the ETF uh, uh, the structure allows for the the breakup of the underlying assets. Last time we talked about how mutual funds will often pay what's called a capital gains distribution. And a capital gains distribution is the underlying holdings in a mutual fund, which are, let's just say stocks. Yeah. Those are bought and sold throughout the year to handle whatever the manager's trying to change or even redemptions from the fund or, or additions to the fund. And so sometimes if you're holding a mutual fund, you can have a negative return on the year, like possibly this year, yeah. but actually have a capital gains distribution, which is a taxable distribution to you from the underlying cells that are happening within the fund. ETFs don't typically do that. So we should unpack that on why don't ETFs generally pay capital gains distributions and what is the unique sort of tax treatment that ETFs get that mutual funds don't get? Yeah, yeah, and again, I'm gonna need your help here because this is a pretty nerdy topic. <laughs> um, so if I'm not making sense to the, the listener, then yeah, jump in Chris. It's, so the ETF like is to say internally, explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> yeah. So the, the mutual fund, as we mentioned, uh, just a few seconds ago, it's managed as one big pool of assets. So if I throw Apple in there, Microsoft in there, the collective value of it impacts every investor equally, if that makes sense. So, um, I'm as a mutual fund investor, I'm, my value is based on how much the entire pool is worth. Right, ETF is slightly different. Again, same end goal here, but the ETF is slightly different. Where that those Apple shares, those Microsoft shares, are divvied up. Meaning, if Chris sells his ETF, that should impact me because it's selling that slice of the ETF or the underlying holdings that are broken up in in that ETF. Where Chris sells the mutual fund, it's actually up to the mutual fund manager to sell something to provide Chris his initial, whatever the value of his investment is mm -hmm. when he wants to take money out or mm -hmm. add money in, right? So I'm not getting equal share of of what the, the underlying index is in the mutual fund because the manager's goal is to beat the index. That's why they're charging higher expenses. But that that wrapper or that structure of an investment product, it it does have that that big drawback of Blackstone's case, right? If they allowed everyone, you know, who wanted to take money out, even if it's like 10% of the investors, 
that's going to sting every other investor who chooses to stay because they have to liquidate that that Vegas property. Was it the Cosmo that you yep. were saying? Um, and let's say no one wants to buy the Cosmo and they got to sell it for 30% discount. Everyone gets stung by that, mm-hmm. right? Versus the ETF where if Chris wanted to sell, he's just selling his fractional shares of Apple, Microsoft, and it doesn't impact me on the fun side. It'll probably impact the market if there's enough Chris's out there looking to sell. Mm-hmm. But that's the movement of Apple, Microsoft, Google, whatever's in the ETF coming down mm-hmm. versus someone else's selling activity impacting me and other investors in the, the pool. So I think what I heard there is, let's say that I, I sell $10,000 from mutual fund XYZ. It's up to the fund manager to say, sell in equal parts yeah. of every single holding inside of here, this fraction to send Chris $10,000. Or the manager might say, hey, I'm gonna sell 5,000 from Apple, 4,000 from Tesla and 1,000 from Microsoft in yeah. order to meet this $10,000 and send it out the door. Yeah. And because of that, there's this, that's also why mutual funds don't price until the end of the day because this trading happens during the day. And due to those decisions, that might be the fund manager's way of sort of rebalancing the fund or shifting the allocation in the fund to sort of meet this withdrawal. You know, they sell more of the thing that they wanted to sell anyways to meet the withdrawal. Yeah. Versus an ETF, I say, hey, I, I want $10,000 for my ETF. And it's going to have this fractional sale of every single tiny thing inside of the fund uh-huh. to meet my, you know, $5 to 50 cents to meet my $10,000 withdrawal. Yeah. And that's why those can price immediately and intraday, but also why mutual funds kick out this capital gain, whereas index funds don't. Because the manager in the mutual fund case, well, I got to sell this winner yeah, to fund Chris's uh, cash needs, or I got to sell this loser. Well, hopefully that's the case, but what if I don't want to sell this loser because I think it's going to rebound? Yeah. And that's where in down markets like this, you, you do see um, significant capital gains, which was from previous year's investment gains. But if you're new to the fund, you're still going to get hit with those capital gains. As we talked about last time, investors that bought the fund in, say, November, and then immediately had a capital gains distribution on November 22nd, they had that capital gains distribution for the entire year, but they only owned it for 20 days. And that's the the catch there. In the ETF case, your your ownership fractionals of like those underlying stocks, because that's ultimately what you're buying is stocks. Mm-hmm. There, that doesn't change whether Chris puts more money in or takes money out. That's that's the beauty of ETF investing, at least in in how it works. But the, we got to consider the co- total cost of ownership because since those those underlying stocks are being traded in and out, right? Apple's not going to wait for you, right? <laughs> Apple's going to trade, right? And the total cost of ownership comes in is when the difference between all the fractional shares, their value at that very moment and lined up against the value of what the ETF is charging. So that's called a premium or discount, mm. depending on how big that spread is, uh, that that can impact you in terms of overpaying or underpaying or For the un- underlying holdings. Yeah. Or underselling mm-hmm. or overselling, depending on how liquid the ETF is, meaning how how often it's traded, how much volume it's trading in, um, how many underlying shares of the ETF, not the not the holdings itself, 
are being traded. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you, you'll see uh, f- free trades on Robinhood, right? Uh, how they make money is the frequency of trading is if I sell you Apple for a hundred dollars, they they will buy Apple for ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents, and then sell it to you for a hundred dollars and one cent, mm-hmm. capturing the two cent difference. That happens a lot with uh, these free trading apps. Payment for order flow. Yeah, and ETFs are the same way, and that's that comes into play for total cost of ownership. So when when you get these, you know, personal finance gurus say buy passive and just buy passive, yes, that works for a lot of funds, but it doesn't work for a lot of other funds. You gotta you gotta know what you're buying. Decent example of this is when some of the uh, cryptocurrency ETFs came out earlier in the year, maybe even last year. Yeah. They would be trading at pretty significant discounts or premiums relative to the underlying holdings. And like 20%. Because, like 20%. Yeah. And so the the how that works mathematically is you might pay, say, $10 a share for this ETF, but the things that are actually inside of the ETF are only worth $9.50. Uh, or the reverse could happen, right? You pay $10 and it's worth $10.50. And so that's called a premium or a discount. Now, tightly, uh, heavily traded funds like the S&P 500 index fund that probably everybody owns, those trade at you know, a penny or two up and yeah. down in terms of, yeah. they're very tightly traded and, and, and so they're very efficient. But funds that are less traded or funds that own more challenging assets, you know, as we know, cryptocurrencies trade 24 hours a day, but the stock market is not open 24 hours a day. Yes. So how do you price this thing that is priced all the time with a thing that's only priced during market hours? Challenging. Um, yeah, real, anyway. real estate funds, bond funds. Real estate are, funds, bond funds, yeah. They'll have bigger spreads because real estate isn't traded every single day. It shouldn't be. I want to bring us back to ETF 101. Yep. Um, that's like super high level. So I want to come listeners. back to yeah. ETF 101 here. So, so let's talk about capital gains. Once again, the stuff inside of the fund still has gains and losses. Yep. So why wouldn't I, if there were say a bunch of redemptions from the fund or deposits or, or a a reconstitution of the index that is tracking or something, why wouldn't there be a capital gains distribution that I would be taxed on? What is the thing? What is the mechanism that is special to ETFs that they can use that sidestep this capital gains tax? Yeah. One, uh, we're talking about passive ETFs, which is, the, the lion's share of the mark, active market right now. Again, there's there's going to be active ETFs out there that you're going to see, which we'll get to. Um, so passively, it's based on a underlying index. Indexes don't change day in day out the makeup of the index. So if it's tracking that, you know you're not going to get a lot of portfolio turnover, which is one one big reason of the um, tax efficiency relative to the mutual fund. And the other part is. Um, the crate redemption mm-hmm. mechanism behind it, which is if Chris wants his fractionals to be sold or bought, meaning I own half a share of Apple, half a share of Amazon, that's he could do that, right? Um, his his cash needs won't affect the mutual fund manager's decision. Well, mm-hmm. it will affect the mutual fund manager's decision, not the ETF manager's decision, mm-hmm. because he's just going to get his portion and go. So that there's no tax uh, implication for his investment decision as it relates to me. Okay. So the way that this works is a, a unique process called creation and redemption. And an ETF will create more shares or redeem shares to grow or shrink in size, whether there are 
deposits into the fund or redemptions out of the fund. And think of this as little pods. And these little pods, say it's an S&P 500 fund, these little pods own all of the 500 shares inside of the S&P. And let's say that the fund doubles in size. Well, then maybe it has two pods instead of one. Yeah. Now, in reality, this is done in very small slivers so that it's efficient. But what happens is this creation process is essentially, let's say with Vanguard, for example, Vanguard says, hey, we got a billion dollars today of new money. So there's a billion dollars of shares floating around out there trading hands with Apple and Amazon and Microsoft, Johnson Johnson. They say, hey, I need this many shares of each of those to fill up this cash need. And that's a creation process. So they create another unit, they grab these shares and they bring it into the fund. Yep. Let's say redemptions happen and they say, hey, we need to now send out a billion dollars of, of funds. And so they send out those shares again in, in equal form to make their funds still track the index. And those shares then trade hands on the open market as there's always volume or trades happening within these these stocks. That process is tax-free, believe it or not. So you can create these pods uh, or redeem these pods and there aren't capital gains because nothing's actually being bought and sold. It's being created or redeemed within the fund. Yeah. And so that unique tax treatment is why ETFs, generally speaking, don't pay out capital gains distributions, whereas mutual funds don't create and redeem, they buy and sell underlying holdings. Correct. Hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's a number of different types of ETFs and we we wrote down seven. There's probably 17 or maybe 70. And they're being created daily. Well, so yes, so ETF names or, or ETFs are being launched every single day. Um, actually, you know, our team just met with a, a new fund company that is has created their own ETFs, and you know, they were discussing with us their unique approach to to, to their products. So ETFs yeah. are created all the time. So, but but broadly, we we're hoping to sort of distill this down into into um, types. The most commonly known ETFs are index funds. And index funds are designed to track an underlying index, like the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000 or uh, growth stocks in the S&P 500 or this type of thing. Yeah. And so the underlying index or the NASDAQ rather. Um, so an index, well, forget about growth stocks. It has to be an index. Um, and so that is designed to, to mirror or, or track that index. How, let's talk about some of the other types of ETFs that are out there and some things to watch out for. Yeah, because of the tax efficiency, uh, we we alluded to new ETFs being created every day. Uh, new types of ETFs and approaches are being created pretty frequently as well. So the next one would be active ETFs, which I think mutual fund where uh, someone behind it is actively making bets, veering away from the index, right? We're not passively inv investing, right? Um, so they're trying to actively beat whatever index or benchmark that they're assigned to. Um, Question, yeah. what's the difference between an active ETF and a mutual fund? Yeah, it's a, it's very much similar uh, in terms of its end goal, but the tax efficiency in terms of the create redeem process makes create the redeem. manager's job, yeah, mm. much, much more easy. Um, but again, it if you're, you gotta be careful with these active ETFs because if their job is to be the the market and the ETF gets too big, they suddenly are the market, and that's what makes it hard. And uh, opposed to a mutual fund, an active ETF has to stay open. 
So if new money comes in, right, and it's constantly coming, I got to buy stuff I don't want to buy. Um, in the ETF, I can't close it. The the mutual fund, I can close money. It's like, I don't want to take any more money, um, which we like. But the active ETF, that's where the, the potential pitfalls could be. If you dive into episode 11, the one right before this, we talked about how mutual funds often, the ones that are very small, you know, a few hundred million dollar fund tend to outperform the ones that are very large because the ones that are small and then outperform ultimately get a lot of flows or money in or tension, and they get yeah. too big to actually yeah. be able to manage their strategy. And then they sort of closet index because they have to do something with all the billions of dollars that are in their fund. And they just kind of tag it into S and P like stuff. Yeah. And then they charge a mutual fund fee to basically be an index or closet index, which is something that we don't generally like. Yeah. And the next one is uh, sector ETFs, meaning I want to buy a real estate index or mm. want to buy a real estate e ETF that tracks the index, uh, or, or I want to buy real estate, real estate specific active manager in the ETF. You can do that. Mm. Uh, the next one's factor ETFs, which is how we design portfolios is using underlying mathematical factors. So Chris mentioned a, a growth ETF. That's, that's making a, a, a active tilt towards growth companies. Right, mm -hmm. companies that have growing profits or growing revenues or growing market share. Uh, leveraged in inverse ETFs. Uh, I, I maybe want to, I don't know how we're doing on time. Maybe we want to um, get back to that one, um, which we don't recommend those at all. Um, and if you're a day trader, then you're probably not listening to us anyway. That's probably the only <laughs> realm or the universe that, that uh, uses those types of products than disruptive ETFs that are doing different types of strategy. But this is all marketing, trying to uh, trying to sell you on on a promise or, you know, trying to get your, your investment dollars because they, they all charge a, an expense, right? An ongoing expense or management fee. So even, even the cheapest ones, they, they charge a fee, right? How do they operate otherwise? So that's, that's uh, ETFs where you could basically replicate mutual funds and index funds pretty easily. I think it's a great point. This is all, all marketing. And, and one of our gripes internally is that the name of the fund isn't necessarily what it actually owns. And we find that funds will be launched. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on fidelity for a minute. They just launched a new line of funds and uh, I believe their choice word in there is disruptive. Well, who doesn't want to be disruptive, right? And so it's like, <laughs> there, I wish there was some regulation on what is in the fund or what that means. Um, uh, we'll talk for a minute or in a minute here on growth and value. Commonly people buy growth because they want their money to grow and that might not necessarily be what yeah. that means. So no. I'm going to come back to that. The point I want to make here is that um, ETFs aren't always cheap. I think that the industry has done a really great job. I remember sitting on a plane one time and the the video screen on the seat back kept rolling a Vanguard ad. Yeah. It was like lowest cost, lowest cost, lowest cost. And so I'm programming, you know, lowest cost, lowest cost. And so you look it up and you're like, oh yeah, I can buy the S&P 500 fund for 0.03%. That's awesome. Yeah. But a lot of these active ETFs are 0 0.75, 0 0.8, 0 0.9. They can be almost 1%, which is in some cases more than mutual funds can be. Uh, also, these are the, the cost of these funds are relative to the size of the funds. One of the reasons why the S&P 500 fund is so cheap is because it's a massive, massive, massive fund. But if you get into a sector ETF, like a real estate fund yeah. um, or an emerging tech fund, 
whatever that means by that definition, or a factor ETF. These are often smaller, and then they can cost a lot more. ETFs just kind of have a have a fee of of you know their their own operations. So just by having ETF on the label doesn't mean cheap. It Not does likely mean more tax efficient, but it doesn't just mean cheap. And cheap doesn't mean it's better. Correct. In, again, we, we're proponents of going cheap and low cost for U.S. large cap because, again, what, what, what am I going to tell you about Apple that you don't already know? Mm-hmm. And how do you beat that? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it's worth paying for, sometimes it's not. Most of the time it's not. So uh, you got to know what the ETF is doing. Let's talk a little bit about know what you own growth and value. So just the titles of these funds are, God, it always makes me crazy. Um, let's just keep it at what's growth mean and what's value mean. And I would leave it up to our listeners to truly look up your fund and maybe don't trust the title. Like what is the benchmark of the fund and what is it actually buying? And you know, what does it contrast with? Cause the fund is just trying to sell you on buying the fund. Um, so how let's talk about growth by definition and value by definition. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll start it this way. Uh, if I looked up the, the definition of value in the dictionary, I would see a picture of Netflix's logo, Facebook's, Facebook's logo right now. Yeah. Yeah. Ford's logo, GE's logo, right? You, those companies that I mentioned are well out of favor with the market. They've sold off 50, 60, 70% and they're, they're still profitable. But the, the premium investors are willing to pay for them have come way down relative to the market. That premium is called the PE ratio. And if I'm just textbook value, right? How much of the premium is Facebook or Meta garnering right now, right? With all the regulatory issues or or growth issues, right? With uh, against TikTok and and Oculus, what what growth prospects are Facebook looking at? Probably not a lot, and that's what the the bet is. Value companies traditionally carry more risk in terms of a mathematical factor than mm-hmm. growth companies. Really? Growth company, yeah, growth company. Uh, throw in Apple, Google, Amazon, right? They're they're growing profits, they're growing revenue or market share, and people pay a premium for that. And growth companies have a more I guess historically traditional or historically consistent growth, growth, right? And that's, that's why they, they're called growth. Are there two sleeves of growth then? Cause there's giant growth like Microsoft and Apple, mm-hmm. which is unbelievably profitable and reinvesting in that. And in fact, in some yeah. cases like Apple, they don't even know what to do with all their money. So they just buy back their stock. Yeah. But then there's another element of growth, which might be, Peloton, Pinterest, Roblox, right? Don't make any money, losing tons of money, but they're growth companies. So are there two segments of growth? There's quite a few segments of growth. So there's disruptive growth. Um, uh, we look at small Which cap Which is fancy growth. for saying doesn't make money. Doesn't make money, yeah. And they're okay. capturing market share. Our, their goal is to capture market share. Just so, huh. um, prior to Netflix being a value company, the focus was subscriber growth, right? Now it's making money. Uber, same mm. thing. Uh, Lyft, same thing. Um, then you got a little bit higher in the, the company size. Uh, Chipotle is a mid-cap growth company, right? 
they sell tons of burritos at growing profits. They could raise prices to thirty dollars a burrito and <laughs> probably still have a lot. And I'd still go there. Yeah, and then large cap growth, which is um, Apple, Amazon, Google. Um, they trade at a relatively higher premium. That's because they're bringing in profits that are mm-hmm. growing more substantially year over year. There's no, there's no major doubts about its viability. And on the flip side, it, 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 they can fall from grace like Netflix has or Facebook has. Yeah, and that is, and yeah. So to invest in those two companies, you're investing in value. And what are you banking on? A turnaround. But there's risk there. There's lots of risk there versus something that is more, I don't know, uh, more expected to be consistent. Because, mm-hmm. again, things these things can turn around. But, yeah, Amazon Amazon has a big, big market share and it's growing. When I think of value companies, I think of undervalued companies. Yes. I think what commonly people will do is they buy a growth fund or a growth company because they want their money to grow and they ignore a value company because I don't, you know, I don't know what that means. You know, my money needs to grow. So I want a growth company, a value company, uh, what, you know, I don't need a dividend. The technical definition of a value company is sort of the Warren Buffett style of investing, which is undervalued, which is why you've seen Netflix and Meta fall into the value category Mm -hmm. because Wall Street is actually saying, hey, these have sold off a lot. They actually might be undervalued relative to their business model. Facebook prints money. And okay, maybe advertising is slowing, but they still print money, right? And so if their stock went down by 70% at the low, that actually might be undervalued relative to the actual earnings or profitability of the company. So value company is actually undervalued. And some of the greatest investors, Warren Buffett, of course, being one of them, focuses on finding those companies and holding them forever. For the rebound, Um, yeah. Yeah, for for the potential rebound. To your point, it's risky because that could be management shakeup. It could be a business yeah. that's getting unseated. It could be, you know, Facebook has one primary product and it's reliant on phones to get out to people to make money, right? So that's inherently risky, which is why value investing, to your point, is more risky. Growth, I think you highlighted really well there because it's giant growth. And interesting, we've seen giant growth do better in this market. Microsoft and Apple have done better relative to Peloton and Roblox because they, they make a lot of money. Um, and then you've got midsize or smaller companies, which are burning cash like crazy. And those growth companies are, are quite risky because they could just as easily go out of business or get acquired at a file fire sell price. Still don't know why Peloton hasn't gotten acquired. That's beyond <laughs> me. Um, or they could become the next Amazon and, and just keep growing and, and ultimately hit reach profitability. Yeah. So those are those two categories and what they mean when you see that on a on a label of a fund. Yeah, another factor I'll throw in is momentum. And Peloton mm. had a lot of upward momentum, then it had a lot of downward momentum. That's another factor that we watch out for. Mm. So yeah, we, we don't really stop at value versus growth or small cap versus mid cap. It's it's everything. I think factor investing. So one of the funds that we, we will uh or factors that we we like is like dividend growth. And so if you take the, all the companies in the S and P 500 and you sort by dividend payers, you know, you're, you're going to get 
a handful of companies that don't fall into there. So you're not going to get Meta, you're not going to get Amazon, for example, but you will get Microsoft and Apple. And um, you can add other factors to that. Like you have to have paid a dividend for at least five years. Then you have to consistently raise your dividend. Couldn't just be a one-time event. And so these are what are called factors, which is potentially a very disruptive way to invest in an ETF form. Because historically, this has been more of how mutual funds operate based on these factors or these investment theses. Theses? Theses? So I think uh, Um, uh, we ran over, but (laughs) we'll probably have to cut this into a part two in terms of ETFs. Let's cut it into a part two. There's a couple other things we want to cover on ETFs, but we hope this was helpful. And next time, our objective is to to talk about the, the year in review. This has been a crazy 2022. So we'll we'll wrap on ETFs next time and we'll cover our year in review. And then look for the year ahead because we we invest where the puck's going to be. I think. Oh, we man. Try Should to we make forward. predictions and see how wrong we're going to be in here? Yeah, I think that's the best way to do it, right? It's risky business. <laughs> I stuck my neck out in October. So why not a full year? That's right. That's right. All right. <laughs> Until next time. Bye, everyone.